0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com.
1: Our sermon text is in Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. (laughs) No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. This is God's word.
0: Thanks, Peter. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors King's Cross, and I am so excited to be here with you. It's been a little bit since I've been up able to share from God's Word um, in a message. And if you bear with me, because unfortunately that also means I'm having a little bit of technical difficulty for some odd reason. I think apps decided to update while I was sitting there. And um, so goes it. I might be doing this from memory. No, <laughs> it's not the first time it's happened. Um, but as was mentioned, and just to give a little bit of uh, um, preface... We are going to be in scripture, but because of the nature of what we're going to speak on, uh, we're talking towards today, it's going to be a little bit more where we typically will be working through books of the Bible or passages of scripture. Today's going to seem a little bit more of a survey, if you will, of of scriptural text. Ah, yes, it opened. Yeah. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) Heart palpitations. Okay. (laughs) I didn't want to go from memory. All right. Um. We can do it. God with us. God is provident and the spirit of God is indwelling in each of us. I trust that um, So that said I want to prepare because while I did we did have scripture reading from Genesis And we are going to touch on Genesis 3. We will be in Genesis There is a way in which we're going to be uh, covering some ground this morning um, And we're going to ask some very important questions uh, We're asking some very important questions like how do we process all the evil that we see in the world? How do we process that? Even within the most recent months, we see school shootings, shootings at malls, parades. What inspires that kind of hate and violence? Wars, endless wars, it seems, at times. Greed, anger, pride that leads rulers of nations to try to conquer other lands. Spiritual leaders abusing their authority like we've spoken of so recently within the SBC, but it's been prevalent in other ministries around the country for a long time that there are spiritual leaders and those who are in authority take advantage of that authority over children, young people, and the trust that their families give them. How do we respond as Christians? How do we understand where all this evil comes from? Does God cause it? Why doesn't he stop it? Can he do nothing about it? What what even about spiritual experiences? Maybe you uh, or someone you know when you ask, like, why do you believe in God? Why do you follow after Jesus? Well, I just had this amazing spiritual experience. And the Holy Spirit really testified to me. And I don't think that's invalid, but other people can have spiritual experiences. People say they have spiritual experiences. Malcolm X claims when he first began following Islam to have experience in his prison cell when he was uh, when he was arrested and and he was met by uh, a spirit that led him into Islam. There are books in the store right now where the author claims to receive that material by spirits of some kind. You can go and you can find books on shelves in stores. People today go to mediums and attempt to speak with the dead The Ouija board. Is that just a little fun, innocent game distributed by Hasbro? I've I've participated as a child in a Ouija board. Is it just fun? Did you know there's actual practicing and growing groups of polytheists even in America? Jordan Paper, who is a professor emeritus of humanities at York University, Published in 2005, a book titled The Deities Are Many, A Polytheistic Theology. And he gets up at lectures to talk about his paper and the study and his own practices of polytheism. You can find videos online of people getting together to talk about that, of summoning the gods. What does all this mean? Why is this in the world? Is this something we need to dismiss? Well, today we're going to dive into some spaces and some passages even that may be somewhat challenging over this period of time today and I'm not going to be able to go exhaustive at all. If you want to hang out with me sometime, we'll grab a coffee, you can dig in. I love it. I'll nerd out on this. It's fun. But I want to give us an overview and a thought. As we talk about a city on a hill and we and we 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 we, we talk about what that means for us to be a city on the hill in the world as followers of Christ, we were preparing for this sermon Series, we're preparing for this series, looking into the fall and where we're gonna head next, and thinking, how do we think well about these things? Because we've we've seen Egypt and all these gods, and God puts them to shame, doesn't he? Remember our series in 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 Exodus? And then all of a sudden, we come into the parables, and Christ is constantly talking about the kingdom of God coming, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light. These are all These are all synonymous phrases that are used throughout scripture. And so what we're going to talk about today is really about the physical and the spiritual realm. The natural, often called natural and supernatural realm. And I'm a little bit iffy on saying supernatural because that acts like it's something outside of, of reality. But in truth, it's just outside of our physical ability to perceive. If we believe that God is spirit, then there is a spiritual realm. And it's very natural because God's in it, and it's natural to him. We don't often talk specifically about spirits and spiritual warfare because there's a lot of misconceptions in the world. Anybody familiar with the phrase, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings? This is a movie that's on 24 hours a day at one of my aunt's house during the Christmas season. Okay, often in black and white. It's a wonderful life and we see a a fantastic story of this angel that comes and the theme at the end is the bell rings And that angel must have done a great job because now he gets his wings Problem is did you know there's not a place in scripture that says that an angel a messenger has wings It's not This cherubim and seraphim that are guarding the throne room and they have wings and there's some kind of animal thing but angels always show up as man. A matter of fact, it says in Scripture that some of us may have been ministered to by angels and didn't know it. And I got to tell you, if somebody walks in my front door with big wings on, I'm going to notice. We often talk about, sometimes you hear people talk about family members passing on to become angels, you hear about everyone having a guardian angel. And some of these have some context of why we see the origination. There's a place where we see in in Revelation where the church is having angels. There seems to be an association between ministering spirits with with regions and nations. But does everybody have an angel on their shoulder? The idea of spirits around us can seem strange to modern sensibilities, right? I mean, and if you're in our camp, sometimes you can fall in the air of just dismissing anything spiritual, because that's just odd. But I think it's important for us, if we're going to talk about these things, if we're going to speak about them, that we place the Bible in its proper context in the way that it talks about this kind of a realm. When I tell you that the Bible is a divine human book, what I mean by that is that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's written by human hands. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit because it's the wisdom of God, but it's not God taking over an individual in a trance. Where They grab a cup of coffee, they black out, they wake up and say, wow, look what I wrote, I can't wait to read it. That's not how we understand it. And and, and I say that, someone jokingly, but do you know that there are believers today that you could probably talk to that maybe have that misunderstanding that some way God handed this book down, bound together, and here it is, or put someone in a trance and wrote it. And it's really important because we, li- we are in a space and a place right now, if you go into a modern university campus as a believer who believes something like that, you can be disproved very quickly. And many people lose their faith because they don't understand. See, actually, we have a much more robust belief about what God does, because in his providence and sovereignty, he does not need to place the writer in a trance, but he can guide him, give him experiences through his personality, through the knowledge he gives him, and providentially preserve his word today. He was provident overall. He knew human limitations. He didn't care. He made sure the right people had the right experiences, inspired to write the right message. He was sovereign over the authorship. He was sovereign over the organization. He was sovereign over the preservation. And now we have his word. And it's not a science textbook, to be clear. God felt no compulsion whatsoever to update the author's scientific knowledge. We have a little more detail about the working of the atom today but God didn't decide he needed to make sure that a first century or a pre, a BC writer needed to know about that. And can we be clear on why that's important? Because if you look to the book as a science textbook, it's not gonna have it. The message being conveyed is for the people at that time by an author with an understanding so that people reading it could know what he's talking about. Imagine for, if you will, God comes a day, decides to inspire Aaron to write a new edition of scripture. Aaron's got, I'm very, a very. I'm sure he's very intelligent knowledge of the inner workings of science today, and God would work through his knowledge to write that book. Then imagine if you will, a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, someone picks that up. I'm pretty sure most of your science is going to be outdated. But let's not be arrogant and think that God wrote that book in that ancient, and through those ancient eyes, to us specifically. Because science changes, but God's word is forever. And his message is true from age to age. Let's not be self-focused. But why should we care about the spiritual realm? Why does it even matter? Why can't I just like, listen, I got Jesus. What else do I need? Because God's word talks about it. Because there is evil in the world. Because God is describing a reality for us through ancient writers, and it's important for us to put it in context, because as we talk about this, my hope for us is that as you read your Bible, you begin to see more and more how God has been at work providentially throughout the text. How does, talk, how does the Bible talk about spirits and angels and demons? Well, often it talks about it with connection of domains, locations. You know, heaven doesn't have a longitude and a latitude. Did you know that? Not that we're aware of, at least, I mean, it's... I'm not going to be like, hey, here's the directions. It's not on Google Maps. But for our understanding, heaven's always up. Sheol, or the place of the dead, is always down. There's regions and places that spirits work. That's okay. It provides helpful clarity. And heaven, and we're going to see here in a little bit, that in creation of Eden, it's a sense in which God is showing us that that's the place that even heaven meets earth. I'm not going to be able to go into terrible detail on all these things, and I'm very serious when I say, please, come invite me to talk about it. Come to my house. Heather would love for me to talk to somebody else about all of this stuff other than her. And here's an error I want us to avoid, please. This is an error I want us—there's errors we can avoid. Okay, the first error is that we could see the supernatural in absolutely everything. What I mean by that is that there's a demon behind every evil. My aunt's sick. It's a demon. She lost a child. It's a demon. I didn't get a good parking spot at the mall, it's a demon. Who goes to the mall anymore? Bad example. The wiring goes out on the TV, must be a demon. And I say that, but that's an error we can go into to see that always at hand. Believe me, there's plenty of evil in humanity. The enemy, evil spirits are not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They're not not everywhere at all places. They don't know everything. They have to use their resources wisely And and if there's evil already in the world, why do they need to be there to help egg it on? I'm serious about that. Let's not see a demon in every evil or every ill situation. Paul encourages us not to do vain speculation, not to follow after superstitions, vain philosophies. The other error that we can have is that we, and this is probably more so in our camp, people, maybe you're in this, I know I would tend this way, is to dismiss the supernatural outright ridicule people that have spiritual experiences. And even more important than that, to not be prayerful and praying kingdom prayers. That there are powers at work in this world and powers of evil at work and that we can pray like Michael did when he said, the Lord rebuke you. And even like Jesus encouraged us that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. There's reasons for that. So what are some goals that I have for us as we go through this series? First, um, I pray uh, that we see that the kingdoms of darkness and light are at battle all around us. It's an ongoing thing. It's a regular thing. Okay? Darkness and light is talked about, Babylon and Jerusalem. The Bible is comfortable moving between the natural and the spiritual, connecting kingdoms and rulers in both areas. The second thing is, I want us to recognize and realize that there is intelligent evil at work in our world. It's not that there's this grand battle going on up in space somewhere, but there's intelligent evil at work, changing plans. They've been around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe there, maybe, maybe, maybe um, possessions work in this area to scare people, but in America, we're just too superstitious. We don't believe that stuff, so they work in other ways by whispering in the ears of leaders. There's intelligent evil at work. We shouldn't take it lightly, and we shouldn't treat it flippantly. Think like summoning spirits and mediums. Third thing is that I want us to know that followers of the Most High should not fear them. You have no reason to fear. They hold no power over those who bear the Lord's name. None. They cannot usurp His authority. We shouldn't fear them. Fourth thing is this God is not powerless against evil. Like I said, we shouldn't fear him. Fifth, God is at work to limit evil. We're going to even look at passages today where God responds to evil and he slows its course. Six, God will ultimately destroy all evil. And this ties in with it in seven, but God is patient so that he might save some. Why is God patient with evil? That he would save some. And then the final thing that I want us to take home as we finish this series up over the next five weeks is that God has saved you and I so that we could join him in the fight against darkness. We have a role. We have a role to play. That like Jesus said, he came to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. He was on a mission, and so are we. So let's look. Let's look at, beginning in the text, to look and examine what God is at work doing. How do we see God at work in the spiritual realm? And then what is darkness doing? What is the kingdom of darkness doing? Today, that's going to be our focus. We're going to focus on what God has done in his creation But then how darkness began to spread on the earth. So look first. God created all things for his kingdom to thrive. He created all those things. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery deep depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Many of us are familiar with this text. In the beginning, God created all things, right? Boom, this is the start. God said, let's do this. Yes, he did. He created that, but it's the start of earth. Scripture actually testifies that he had already he had already created a family in the heavenly spaces. Look at Job 38, 2-7. When Job got a little uppity with God, if you're familiar with the story, I mean, granted, he was pretty much tormented. Okay, so he'd gotten to a low point, and he questioned God, and God came back to him. And he said, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. And he starts asking me, he said, who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. If God comes to you like that, if God bows up on you and says, get ready to answer me like a man, I don't want to be there. But he does. He comes to Job. He says, be ready to answer me. And he answers, asks questions. He says, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, you who know so much, who fixed its dimensions? Certainly, you know who stretched a measuring line across it What supports its foundations and this is where I'm going here or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, there was people celebrating there There's somebody present celebrating Christ's creation or God's creation and look at notice that he uses familial titles for these sons of God He describes often the spiritual realm as stars, messengers is what angels mean. And often other times, when you're studying and you're not going to necessarily see this in the Greek, if we in the Hebrew or in the English, I'm sorry, it's in the Hebrew, um, the word Elohim, which we often take as God. Throughout Scripture, Elohim is often also generally used to describe spiritual things. So think of when we see Elohim of Elohim, that God is the God of all spirits. The spirit of spirits, the God of gods, those over all any other spiritual powers. And the reason we can also see that most explicitly is in 1 Samuel 28. Saul has uh, gotten to a really tough spot as king in Israel, and, and Samuel has passed away and died. And if you have read this story or heard this story, Saul goes to a medium to try to bring back Samuel for some more advice. Right? If I've passed on and I'm resting with the Lord for eternity, don't ask me back for advice. But Saul's desperate, so he goes to a medium, and he calls back this spirit of Samuel, and it freaks out the medium. It's almost like she wasn't expecting it to actually happen, okay? In verse 11 through 13, Paul, Saul says, what do you see? And she says, um, oh, in 11 through 13, she said, who is it that you want me to bring up for you? The woman asked, bring this Samuel for me, he answered. And in verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, and she asked Saul, why did you deceive me? You're Saul. But king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And she says this, I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth. I see a Elohim form coming out of the earth. So often we hear the spiritual realm described in that way. So how did God create everything? He created the heavens. He created the earth. Well, I would say he created everything very good and in order. He created heaven. He created the earth. He created it very good and in order. Genesis 131 says that God saw all that he had made. And it was very good indeed. And he's talking about creation on earth. He saw that it was perfect and right and righteous. Isaiah forty-five, twelve says, I made the earth and I created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded everything in them. See that, see both Isaiah saying, I made the earth and I created humans on it. And it was my hand that stretched out the heavens and I commanded everything in them. He's a God of order. He makes it not only good, upright, and righteous, but orderly. God has organized the world and placed it in order, made a garden, and put God as its head. Originally, we see that he has placed him there. Not God. He placed Adam and Eve as the head of humanity to to, to steward what's been created. He put somebody in charge. And in the heavenly order, we see nothing different. We also see titles and positions. We see descriptions of messengers and princes. When the Bible talks about these things, he talks about locations of responsibility. talks about kings of Tyre, prince of Persia, the prince of the power of the air. Daniel 10, 12-13, there's some explicit examples, and there's many more you could go to, but specifically, Daniel says, I have come because of your prayers, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Who is this? Well, then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. See how God has inspired Daniel to tell us that there's powers in the spiritual realm that are at work and that they have roles and responsibilities. They have titles and that Michael is one of the chief princes. What kind of chief prince, by the way? He's a big deal. Daniel 12, 1 says that Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people. That's, that's Israel. Michael is Israel's great prince. Paul carries this exact same language in the New Testament, and you probably recognize this when he talks about the evil spirits of our age. Ephesians 2, 1 through 12, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedience. And then in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. What is the schemes of the devil? What is it we struggle against? Your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven. Again, Scripture is comfortable moving between what is happening in the world and what is happening in the heavenly realms, and it says there are rulers and authorities in both, and God is fighting against them. And finally, he created everything very good, but he created it for his presence. Listen, God's kind of like a family man. He didn't have to create everything. He didn't need anything. But he created a heavenly and an earthly family and offered us everything. Eden was created as God's holy mountain where heaven would meet earth. He had his earthly family there and he placed... In Eden, there's tabernacle language about the way he organizes this place. A place where he would dwell That's what we saw in Exodus, where he sets up the tabernacle, and we even spoke to the fact that it has descriptions of of God creating a mobile Eden. And then when you go fast forward to Revelation, Eden comes back to earth in the New Jerusalem. And he came and he dwelt with man where heaven met earth, and he walked in the garden, Genesis 3-8 tells us, on a regular basis. Man was created as a priest to tend the tabernacle and spread God's glory. In Ezekiel twenty-eight, eleven, we see the exact same. Um, Ezekiel twenty-eight, we see the exact same language when it talks about the fall of Lucifer, where it says, "The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, lament for the king of Tyre. He's talking about king of Tyre, and say to them, "This is what the Lord says: You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty." You were in Eden, the garden of God. That's recognizable to a first century Jew as tabernacle language. Every kind of precious, precious stone covered you. Carnations, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper. All the stones, all the beauty. I'm going to go down, move down to you were an anointed guardian cherub. Now he's talking king of Tyre. Now he's specifically talking to a cherub that's in the garden. For I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. And from the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, the guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground I made you a spectacle before kings, and that's where we turn now to what is darkness doing. In Ezekiel, God describes His garden of God, His holy mountain, being tarnished by sin, by the king of Tyre, who comes in in his pride and his 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 pride and his beauty, and he sins against Almighty. But he doesn't do it alone. What I hope we understand is that this is not a spiritual problem and that, man, if we could just get rid of him, humanity would be all that much better. Evil reigns in humanity, too. And we see it enter first in the garden. Because while God created all things good, while God created all things perfect and in order, while he created those things for his presence, God's creatures rebelled against his kingdom rule. Literally cosmic treason. He's got his kingdom set up, and then all of a sudden this faction says, nah, we don't need you as our king. Spirits and humans rebelled together. The kingdom of darkness filled the earth. And how did it come? Well, when you, if you were to ask, like today, if I asked you today, hey, when did sin, how did sin come into the world? Why is it so bad? Also, many of us, I'm not going to say you for sure, you might reference the first one we're going to look at, which is in the garden, Genesis 3. There are actually three different events between spirit realm and humanity that a first century Jew would point to and say, that's where that's where evil multiplied. And we're going to look at all three of those. And the first one is in Genesis 3, 1-7, where darkness first comes. It's in God's garden in Eden that death enters the world. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I should have Laura come back up. She read it better than I can. Did he really say that? Look at that, the first question. In his arrogance, the serpent says, you sure? You sure? And the woman responds, listen, we may eat of all the fruit of the tree of the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And often a big deal is made about um, Eden and Eve that, oh, look, she added more to what God's command was. You know, okay, we can make a point that. He didn't necessarily say don't touch it, but he's, he's trying to be explicit. So I don't need to go in on Eve here. But she clearly is saying, yeah, this is what he definitely said. She knew she wasn't supposed to eat it. And the serpent responds in verse 4. No, 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 no. You will certainly not die. God has lied to you. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, I'm under no impression. I don't think we should either. This is, again, not a science book for us to believe that animals talked to Adam and Eve back then or that this is some illustration of what happened to snakes and why they crawl around. In fact, I would, also, I would argue that Eve, given that she was familiar with the spiritual and, and God was walking in the garden, that she was not uncomfortable with spiritual beings and was probably very well aware that she was speaking to something outside of a created serpent. The problem is that once this serpent lied to her or questioned God And said, no, God's hiding from you because when you eat, you'll be like God. The problem is she believed him. Not that she acknowledged spiritual beings in the world. Not that she knew that evil was at work or that there was the possibility of disobedience. But that she heard what he said and she believed him over God. Look what the woman did. She saw that the tree was good for food and delight delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Eve saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, and she took it. Despite what the consequences would be, despite what God has already told her, she saw it, desired it, and took it. And Adam is not guiltless. He joined the rebellion. By the way, apparently he's just standing there because she's like eating the fruit and it's like, oh. It's his hands to her husband. I I would actually suggest he's not bold enough to make the first move. He let Eve take the bite and then says, all right, I'll do it with you. Isn't this exactly what what God said Lucifer did? He saw the power and authority he had. He desired God's throne, and he tried to take it. How many more great sins in our life have the same exact pattern? We see something that's desirable, and we try to take it no matter what God said about it. That's what David did on the roof when he saw Bathsheba. He saw her desired her, and took it. That's the same captivating sin when we talked about spiritual abuse in church and pastors. When they are blinded by what God has commanded for them, they see something in their congregation, and out of the perversion of their heart, the demonic influence of this world, they desire it, and they take it. I pray that God might guard our hearts from this sort of arrogance and pride. That we ignore God's clear command in our life and see things in this world and desire them more than obedience to God. It doesn't stop there. Because now at this point, sin has entered the world and it says their eyes were opened and they felt shame because they realized they're naked. It's not like it was a revelation that they're all of a sudden going, oh my, where'd my clothes go? No, they now feel exposed before God because they know what they've done. They feel the guilt. And so God comes to them. We have an exchange. And the world goes forward and goes on, and everything gets better, right? No, no, no. The story of the beginning of Genesis actually gets worse and worse. We see that Cain kills Abel. There's murder in the world. We see that Cain's descendants just get arrogant themselves, and they go on almost ignoring that there's a God who has asked anything of them. And in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, this is when we're going to get to a kind of a weird passage. Maybe you've avoided this. I'm going to go in. Because something happens. And I'm going to read the text. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the Son of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to admit, I'm not, I'm not going to l- say that this is a settled issue, okay? I'm, I'm going to just tell you this, and I want to I present to you a couple of options here because something weird happens in Genesis 6. The sons of God, we've heard that phrase before, haven't we? Saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any of them as wives for themselves. It almost suggests there's some spirits who said, these girls are looking cute. I'm going to take some as my wife. Now I will admit That there are two major probably primary theories There's others and the one that's uh, Prevalent one of them is the sons of Seth Are actually the sons of God And that the daughters of Cain are being Referred to as the daughters of mankind Problem is it doesn't Say anything other than That being just interpreted that's a problem I'm just going to admit okay it does solve The issue of angels coming down that's Weird But nowhere else inside of the Old Testament, especially, do we see where anybody's lineage is referred to as sons of God. And why is it that the daughters are the evil ones? Just saying. And it's also suggesting that in some respect that that Abel's line is just, or Seth's line is just righteous. But I got a question. If they're righteous men, why are they marrying unrighteous women? Kind of weird, right? Here's the other possible solution. They're just rebellious spirits. Jesus said, this is a problem, this is not without problems. Jesus said in Matthew 22:30 that in the resurrection, that people will not be married nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, suggesting that angels don't marry people. So why would it be marriage here? And then he says, angels don't marry. Well, I have some solutions for that, because if I'm going to show all my cards, I actually like this as the solution to this text, that these are rebellious spirits. Jesus says that they're not given a marriage like angels in heaven, assuming angels that are in their proper order and place. Secondly, he doesn't say that they can't take women for themselves. He says they don't do it. Finally, the assumption here in this particular passage, says that they took them as their wives, but it doesn't have to mean that they actually had wedding ceremonies and married them. Because the phrase is, and they took women for themselves. The other reasons I think that this is probably the most likely interpretation is because sons of God throughout Scripture we see as angels or spirits. Like in Job, regularly, he constantly calls spirits and angels sons of God. Also, in 2 Peter and Jude, there's a reference to this time period, and they refer to spirits who came out of their proper dwelling and order and that are in chains. Jude even references angels that didn't keep their position, but they abandoned that dwelling. So listen, we've got creation from nothing. We've got a serpent that's talking to to Eve in the garden. I'm okay with maybe spirits did come. And it's, it's interesting to note that it says they saw the daughters of men, they desired them, and they took them. Finally, first century Jewish tradition saw this as actually the time in which depravity multiplied on earth. 2 Peter and Jude connects this passage to false teachers. Where 2 Peter says that the false teachers are going to be judged. And in verses 4 through 5 of chapter 2 says, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Suggesting if he didn't spare them... He won't spare false teachers. The original spirit who rebelled in the garden taught Adam and Eve to disobey and rebel. Why would they change their tactics? They came to multiply evil on the earth. And by the way, even today we see, like I mentioned before, books that are recorded of false teachers where they claim to have been taught by spirits. Famous author... When I say famous author, maybe you've never heard of this, an author named Jane Roberts has a book out called Seth Speaks where she claims to have been practicing and, um, and experimenting with a Ouija board where a spirit named Seth began to speak to her and her husband and where they eventually, she gave him permission to put her in a trance and speak through her. And the book gained major popularity coming out of the 70s. In fact, it is often cited as being the beginning of the New Age movement. In her book, she tells people, you, are, you can watch videos of this, by the way. And John MacArthur, who a, is a pastor, John MacArthur, who is a cessationist, so he just pushes back from a lot of kind of other spiritual things that happen, that, that their sign gifts aren't occurring now. He even saw videos and said, if anyone has been possessed, this woman was. And she gave the message of, you are not damned. Mankind has a tendency to project his own guilt and his own errors upon a Father God image, who it seems must grow weary of so many complaints. In fact, you create your reality. Doesn't that sound like a message from the garden? By the way, in case we want to try to blame those spirits for what they do in this world, it's not always the devil's fault. Humanity, as in this text, also tells us was evil all the time. That, that God says he would not tarry on with mankind, so we need to remember the humans aren't victims here. They have a testimony of what God has, has given them, and they believe the lies. And then the third, the third message, the third story that we're going to look at briefly here, is when darkness begins to spread all over the earth. Nations going after other gods in Genesis 11. Maybe you're familiar with the Tower of Babel. We often reference this as a place where we get all our languages on the earth, but let's take an examination of what's happening there in Genesis 11, chapter 1 through 9. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, "Come, let's make oven-fired bricks." They used bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they used and they said, "Come, let's build ourselves a city." And a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves; otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. And then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower the humans were building. Then we often sound maybe we talk about this passage as as uh, um, I've heard at least when I was a kid, thinking they're just building this really super tall tower. Wow, how'd they get this this, this knowledge? Just, we're going to build the first skyscrapers. But in fact, often this this passage is referencing saying we're going to build a tower to the heavens. Not that it's necessarily super tall, like they think, if we get it high enough, we're going to enter God's domain and we're going to stand side to side with him. But in fact, many, many uh, scholars would say that what they were building was called a ziggurat. Ancient ancient civilizations would build a ziggurat because they would use it to offer sacrifices or to call on gods. To make requests, to get them to, to bend to their knee, to give them things they need, things they want. And it says the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language. So they won't understand one another. And the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore it's called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language and the whole earth from the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So the people began to build a tower, to tame God, if you will, to call on him when they desire to have their needs met, to make a name for themselves, and God said, I'm not going to be tamed. God says, you're not going to stay in this place. I've commanded you to multiply and fill the earth with my glory, and they joined together in one place and built a tower. So this is a question. Three occurrences that we looked at, we see in the Garden of Eden. We see, we see sin multiplying. By the sons of God coming to Earth, we see um, evil has continued there, and they're building a tower to call on God. Why doesn't God just stop evil? Isn't that really the question? Why is it that He just doesn't say, "Listen, these 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 spirits are rebelling against me. They're leading man astray. Humans are rebelling. I'm just going to wipe this this these spirits out. Evil's going to be gone, and we're all good. everybody that's left is good." Okay, well, there was this, uh, anybody heard the show X-Files? We're getting weird stuff anyway, might as well talk about X-Files. Listen, there was this episode, it's just, it's, it was a popular show back in the 1900s. Um, there was this episode where they found a genie, okay? They found a genie, and the character Mulder is, 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 is making a request from the genie, and, 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 and he, he wishes for world peace world peace. I want peace on, the, on earth. He said, boom, done. He goes outside and nobody is there. Gene said, you want world peace? Everybody's got to go. Now that's X-Files. Psalm 130 verse 3 says it this way, Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, if you punished iniquity, Lord, who could stand? God is tarrying because if he destroyed evil, none of us would survive. But the kingdom of light is not powerless against evil. Can we be encouraged by that? Look at the responses that each of these we just mentioned. I want to show you that God did not stand silent. When death entered the world in the garden, God promises redemption. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, You have done this. You are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. We know this is a reference to Christ. We recognize that God is promising that there will come ultimate destu- destruction. That the serpent who led Eve and Adam into into rebellion. Again, remember I'm saying it's not meaning, hey, snakes had legs, now they're gone. Remember, he casts them out of heaven, and he says, you will be on your belly and eat dust. Where you were in your former glory, now you are not. He punishes that, but at the same time, he makes a promise of redemption, where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. Look at the other story where darkness deepens on this earth, where it's multiplied. We see that God resists and he limits their depravity. I already mentioned 2 Peter and Jude where it says that God put the sons of God in chains who did these things, stopping them from further propagation. But also, this is right before Noah. He sees evil on the earth and he does what? What? When the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures to crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. But Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. And that's when he floods the earth and saves one family to start over. He limits the spread of that wickedness. He stops and halts it and pushes it back and starts again. And then finally, when the darkness is spreading in the nations of the world, it says that he divided the nations around the world. Deuteronomy 32 gives us another view of what's happening there. It's actually the Song of Moses. Remember we talked about him in Exodus? Where he talks about the way the world is functioning and everything in it. And he says in chapter 32 verses 7 to 9 He says this, remember the days of old Consider the years of past generations Ask your father. He will tell you Your elders, they will teach you. They apparently knew about this When the Most High Gave the nations their inheritance And divided the human race Always talking about Babel Whenever we see that division language He set the boundaries Of the peoples according to the numbers And I've changed this because if you're Looking at your CSB, it says this Of the sons of Israel or the people of Israel. The reason I change it is because for some reason the CSP went with this translation, ESV goes with sons of God, because an older version of this text that we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls, says sons of God. The Septuagint reads angels there. That apparently when he divided them up, he said this, you want to follow other gods, you want to try to call down someone to your own will, fine, go. Go out, worship what you want, you're not mine anymore. He divided the nations up and set them around the world. But verse 9 is the catch. This is what's most important. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. Because guess what happens in the chapter following Babel? God calls out Abraham. He sees the wickedness on the earth. And he calls aside, he sets aside a promised seed for himself in Abraham. He promises the end of this injustice, and he promises through through Abraham. He says, "You know what? Evil spreads on this earth, but through you, the nations will be blessed." God is a good and just King over all heaven and earth. He is long-suffering, and he will bring justice. He limits depravity in its works and effects, but ultimately evil continues to be present with us. But when we see what he's done in Abraham, we know the next part of the story in Abraham's seed. Where next week, we're going to look at his ultimate response to all of this darkness and evil in the world, and that he accomplishes that in his son, Jesus Christ our our reality around us is a battle between darkness and light but I want us to think about how we can respond to that and I have several encouragements encouragements for you as we wrap up first I encourage you to pray against the kingdom of darkness last week Aaron talked about the persistent widow about coming continually to the throne in prayer I would ask that we continue to pray against the rulers of darkness in this world. That we would pray against the lies of the enemy. Not every evil is a demon, but the lies of darkness are always at work throughout the world. I would also encourage you that you don't have to shy away from weird spiritual conversations. You don't have to dismiss people when they claim they have spiritual experiences because spirits do work in the world. But what we know is that all spiritual experiences can happen, but not all of them are God most high. They're not from God who is ruler over all. So we can lead people into that and say, hey, do you know I know the one who actually has saved us from all those lies of the world? I know the one who has led us into all truth. Finally, we can also... I want you to trust God the Most High more because though evil and pain and suffering in this world are the fruit of the kingdom of darkness in this world and what we see can overwhelm us, I want us to remember that God sees everything. Even though we turn on the news and we are overwhelmed by the amount of evil in this world and even in our life we can be pressed down by the fact that evil still is present with us, Remember, there is nothing hidden from God. And while he is bigger and he is stronger and more powerful than us, he still bears it with much patience and what much long-suffering. And Roman tells us that he is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. God is not powerless against this evil. He's working in the world through, throughout the spiritual realm to limit evil. But God will ultimately destroy evil. And so while we wait, while we are present in this world, while we trust him in his timing, remember that God has saved you and I to join him in the effort. That we won't, I don't want us to underestimate the significance of our everyday obedience. That the very opposite of what occurred in the garden, the very opposite of almost every evil act That goes without regard for what God has asked of us. To see what you want, to desire it, and just take it. Rather, I would encourage you to hear what the Lord has said. Trust him and follow him. Beloved, you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And while evil may seem to reign, let your light shine before men. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, you've chosen to be patient with evil. Father, which, how many of us would not have been able to come to know you if you hadn't tarried this long? If you hadn't waited to save some? God, even where Scripture says you left, that Jesus says the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep. Many of us might feel like the 99 that's still in this world seeing the evil that's around us, but you still pursue after the one. Because there are more to be brought into your kingdom to be saved. There are more to know about the good and glorious God, Most High, who has loved this world, created this world for his presence, and who has made a way in your Son that we can again dwell with you. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to me. Thank you for your love and the wisdom that you've given us in your Holy Scripture, the absolute beauty of what you've done throughout the ages. Father, give us more and more trust every day in you and your power to move mightily in this world. And I ask all this in your Son's name.